So what you're in real danger of doing is saying to men, to the extent that you're more like a woman, you're less toxic. And, and that's just not, a, it's not a great message to a 17-year-old boy. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. In 1972, Congress passed landmark legislation to promote gender equality in higher education, known as Title IX. At the time, there was a 13-point gap in the proportion of bachelor's degrees going to men compared to women. In 2019, the gender gap in bachelor's degrees was 15 points, even wider than in 1972. But now, and it might surprise you to hear this, it's men who are being left behind. In fact, over the last several years, there's been a growing concern about the struggles of boys and men in primary education, in college, in the workforce, the impact they have on our politics and culture. And we have to break free from zero-sum thinking if we're going to address the problems facing boys and men and still work to solve the problems facing women and girls. So today we're going to dive into all of this with Richard Reeves, who is the author of an excellent new book, Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. Richard is a senior fellow in economic studies and the John C. and Nancy D. Whitehead Chair at the Brookings Institution. He's the director of the Future of the Middle Class Initiative and the co-director of the Center on Children and Families at Brookings. He's a contributor to The Atlantic, National Affairs, Democracy Journal, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. Richard is the former director of Demos, the London-based political think tank, and holds a PhD from the University of Warwick. In addition to Boys and Men, his research focuses on inequality and social mobility. Richard, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Politicology. Great. Thank you so much for having me on, Ron. Toxic masculinity, um, because you mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier. Um, what do we need to understand about the term toxic masculinity, what it, what it means, and why it's counterproductive? It's a term that jumped out of the obscurity of certain academic journals in 2016. Until that point, it was just used by academics who worked actually on incarcerated men with very violent histories. Uh, and so it was, it was a way in which how had their ideas of masculinity, particularly growing up, become entwined with ideas of violence and aggression. And so it was just used like a few times a year in journals that no one's ever heard of. But then it broke out with the election of Donald Trump, Me Too, uh, and that whole movement into everyday language. And it then, it then began its journey into becoming un, very unhelpful because it became essentially just a, a way of saying, Bad, you know, bad stuff men do. It's very rarely defined. And uh, so it's intellectually, it intellectually became a pretty vacuous concept quite quickly and counterproductive, which most feminist scholars would agree now, is un, it's unproductive, counterproductive, because it pushes men away from the conversation. Being told that, okay, part of you is toxic or you have the potential of being toxic, literally poisonous, but we're just going to help you manage that or extract that. It's just a bad start to the conversation. Uh, and it actually and actually creates a bad conversation with boys uh, and men, and so it's actually turned out to be a very very unhelpful term, partly because it's just used so loosely for just pretty much pretty much anything boys and men do that the user of the term disagrees with can be described as toxic masculinity. So, not wanting to wear a mask, not recycling, uh, whatever, it's all toxic masculinity. Uh, using fossil fuels is toxic masculinity, and it, it just it, that becomes so general that it's. 
anybody. Yeah, it's just it becomes close to a slur, actually. Right, and now uh, I can see a proponent of the term saying, "Hang on, wait a minute. We're not trying to say that masculinity is always toxic, but the behaviors like suppressing emotions." Uh, attempting to appear, appear hard or using violence uh, and and bullying as an indicator of power are bad. And you cite an article that Carol Harrington wrote in 2020 uh, about the term. And one thing that jumped out from that piece was that the term toxic masculinity reinforced the idea that these are individual problems, not structural. So can you talk about how that term toxic masculinity frames these behaviors as individual character flaws and not part of a structural problem once again yeah so it it comes back to this this individualization problem which is that the problems you know with of men are very often framed as a problem with men and so it's a tendency to sort of describe any issues that men might be having through this individualistic lens and toxic masculinity is a very powerful way of doing that right um, and so, for example, the fact that men men died of COVID in much bigger numbers um, than women among middle aged men, the death rate was twice as high. At least a hundred thousand more men died than women um, in the US. And the initial response to that, first of all, it took a long time to get attention to that fact. But even then, when it does, there was a lot of discussion of how it's being caused by toxic masculinity, either because men drank too much or smoked too much or wouldn't wear a mask or you know whatever. And it, none of that was true. It's just actually there's a biological vulnerability to the virus that, that men had. Um, but it was an, a really interesting and instructive example of the misuse of the term and this individualization, right? If men are dying in higher numbers, it must be because of something bad that, that, bad that they're doing. And that then actually is very bad for policy because you're thinking, well, actually, we should have been thinking really hard about getting vaccines into the arms of men because they were dying in such it's a really perverse form of victim blaming. Yeah, that, in that case, it's okay. It's, it's, on the left, it's the only acceptable form of victim blaming left, I think. It's hard to think of many other uh, areas where that's true. And so I think it can be very mis- bad for the formation of policy. It leads you away from just an empirical approach to the problem. But then culturally, it, it just it turns out to be a very unattractive phrase to the vast majority of boys and men. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so it's just... The, the framing. And so the advocate of that, they'd say, if they, if they want to argue that there are expressions of certain aspects of masculinity that are not good, maybe including someone's dimension, sure. Sure. That's pretty hard to argue against, just as there are for femininity. But to label them as toxic means you're then in the business of figuring out which bits of you or I are toxic right. or which things of you are toxic and which are non-toxic. So the best you can hope for is to be not toxic, right? right? I mean, that's just a horrible way to frame oh. it oh. <laughs> for boys and men, right? So don't be toxic. It's a bit, it, reminds me, it reminds me a little bit here of the idea, the idea of original sin. Mm. You know, yeah. The Puritan idea of original sin is a bit like it's this thing that's in you you know, it's been handed down. It's maybe, you know, and it's just, just got to try and exercise it or deal with it. But there's a kind of brokenness implied by it um, that's only applied to men. And I, and so I think it's been an incredibly unhelpful term. And I think the sooner people stop using it, the better, not least because the, the attempt to define non-toxic masculinity in a way that is distinct from femininity almost always fails it's just like there it's an empty set non-toxic masculinity turns out to be femininity and so that's the so you've just created a null set essentially um and so what you're in real danger of doing is saying to men to the extent that you're more like a woman you're less toxic uh, and that's just not a, it's not a great message to a 17 year old boy it's not a great message <laughs> 
I love how you you using data science terms <laughs> to, to, to describe this problem in null set. Um, okay, so let's now turn to the politics here. So in the middle of the book, toward the, toward the end of the book, part four, um, you talk about how some figures on the right have made the argument that, air quotes, the left is conducting an all-out war on men, uh, or that the left hates men. And this could be part of why it's so easy for people who are on the left to dismiss the argument so quickly, right? Because it's 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 quite a, a, a caricature of 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 what's real. And while that kind of hyperbolic claim is obviously intended, I think, to inflame, the reality is that the left is in denial of the problem, or they're blind to the problem. And so, and there, and I think there's a difference there. There's a difference between ignorance or being unaware and and denial. And so I wonder if you could tease that out a little bit and and tell us how you see um, uh, attitudes toward this problem on the left. And then maybe you can characterize the ideological dynamics here and separate reality from rhetoric. Yeah, so the difference between you know, blindness and denial is is an interesting one. And although I talk about blindness, I, I think now I'm reflecting on it, I'm very often probably referring to denial. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes it's blindness. I mean, I, I have to say I am quite struck by how when I share even some of the statistics that we've talked about, that you've shared at the beginning, Ron, and through this conversation is how many people, even people in quite influential positions, say, really? Right. You sure? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Like it's it's in, you know, this has been thoroughly fact-checked and peer-reviewed. Yeah, I'm totally sure. I'm a Brooklyn senior fellow. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Like, please believe me. And sometimes you have to go through honestly, it's true. Like it's right. true. Honestly, it's true. And like, really? Yes. Uh that doesn't sound right. It is right. Um uh, but it's also a classic sort of vicious circle because the less we're talking about it, right, the less well known this stuff is. Right. And so it does come as a surprise. It does people do kind of question it. So I think what's more likely to be happening for most of the folks on the left who know about this stuff is that they do feel that accepting that there are real problems facing a lot of boys and men now publicly and addressing them actually will give fuel to the people on the right who say that society is failing men, men are struggling, you know, men are the new victims, etc. And so they just don't talk about it at all. It's just silence. Like CDC is one example, but it's just true. The Gender Policy Council at the White House won't mention it. Really? There's just no, there's just like, there's no, it cannot be discussed. Um, I think that's a very bad political miscalculation because if it's true, that statement, making suicide or struggling in education or whatever, you can't hide that truth, right? Unless you're going to stop publishing data. It is going to be out there. And if you're not talking about it and acknowledging it as a problem and setting up task forces and stuff to do about it, it's very easy then for reactionary figures on the right yeah. to say, boys and men are struggling, true. They don't care about it. Kind of feels true if you're not volubly talking about it. So it sounds very plausible. Josh Hawley is making a very, he says, yeah. Josh Hawley has his own book coming out on, it's called Manhood. Oh boy. Which is a much better title than mine. <laughs> um, traditional, but he says exactly what you've just said, which he's a, he's a kind of good good case study of this, which is men, boys and men are struggling, true. The left take them. Sounds plausible, given how badly the left is mishandling this issue. Um, uh, so 
So vote for me and I'll bring back manufacturing and marriage hmm. with some magic wand that only Senator Hawley has. Hold on a minute. Um, <laughs> and, right, how are you going to do that, Senator? But right. anyway, it's not, policy is not really the point here. The point, and then each side, of course, polarizes the other. Yeah. The more that one side emphasizes the problems of boys and men on the right, the more the left feel that they have to ignore or understate them. Yeah. The more the left understate or ignore them, the more the right feel the need to elevate them. But the deeper point here is that it's an axiom of political cultures that if there are real problems in that culture, in that society, and responsible people are not addressing them and being seen and heard addressing them, they do become grievances. And grievances can be expanded and exploited and amplified by reactionary forces. And so I think that the stakes here are quite high because that's what I think is happening to lots of these issues for boys and men. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here in my notes because this is a really perfect segue um, to negative partisanship, which we talk a lot about on the show. Um, and just as a reminder to listeners, this is, this is the idea of essentially the era that we're in, which is that more and more people are forming their opinions based on opposition to political parties and figures they don't like rather than the other way around. And that incentivizes politicians and parties to take increasingly more polarized and extreme positions. And so um, I think what you're getting at is, is that that's precisely what we see playing out here in, in the debates about, around boys and men, and even in the willingness to acknowledge the data that you're, that you're offering. That's exactly what's happening. And, and that's the fear is that you, you get this negative partisanship ratchet effect, right, that you've just described so well. And I absolutely see it here. And it's, it's one of the reasons I'm sort of desperately trying to sort of try and get into this space now in the sort of boring Brookings chart-led way that I am now is to try and de-escalate this, try and make this much more boring, much more earnest, much yeah. more policy-based, more, more charts, fewer speeches, because I do see absolutely that happening. And I think, you know, when, when Josh Hawley talks about the left hating men and, you know, they're after masculinity and so on, and you see the left responding right. by talking about women right. um, and there's a war on women. And, and it seems like you can, you know, there's either a war on men or a war on women <laughs> and you have to just sort of decide which there is. And it sort of feels unlikely that both of those things are happening at once. <laughs> and so it's really just this question of like, which side you're on. Right. Um, uh, and you choose, you basically choose your war. Yeah. Um, and then choose your side. And if it's framed in that way, which it really is being done on both sides, yeah. not allowing ourselves to think two thoughts at once and say, here are the ways in which women and girls still obviously struggling and need kind of help. Right. Oh, and here are the ways that boys and men are struggling. But neither side wants to do that because it will mean them giving up on this kind of base motivating rhetoric, right. um, which is if you're on the right, the feminists are destroying masculinity, they hate men. Or on the left, the, the conservatives hate women and they're stripping them. It's sending us back to Handmaid's Tale. Don't even mention boys and men. That, and that cycle's really, really turning at the moment. I want to go back. It was something else that really jumped out at me um, in the book was the difference in resources and infrastructure uh, between people and, and groups, institutions who are looking into the problems women and girls are facing uh, as compared to boys and men. I, I, my eyes popped out as I was reading the, this this section of the book. So maybe you can explain to people um, when we when we talk about the differences in infrastructure and resources, um, what does that landscape look like? Can you can you can you sort of um, describe how lopsided it is for someone who who might think that oh, there's just a lot of researchers looking into a lot of things and it's pretty well distributed. 
Yeah, so the, the, it's absolutely not the case, <laughs> hence some of the conversations we've just been having. But, I mean, there is a there is a huge institutional asymmetry when it comes to focusing on issues of gender in one way or the other. So there are hundreds, if not thousands, of organizations and huge amounts of money, public and philanthropic, going into advocate research and advocacy on behalf of women and girls. Uh, much of that stems from, you know, some of these organizations go back to the women's movement in the 70s, but a lot of them are much more recent. So you're seeing a lot of states now creating women's commissions. Washington State, for example, created its women's commission in 2018. A lot of colleges and universities are creating women's commissions on their campuses. Um, and Melinda Gates is just spending spending a billion dollars on gender equality in um in the US. And so you'll get societies like women and you know, women and engineers or take your pick, the Institute for Women's Policy Research, the National Organization of Women, the we have a national coalition of women and girls in education that still does good work. We have the American Association of University Women, and so on. And there are no equivalents on the other side. And you might argue that well, we didn't need them before, and that might be true that we didn't, but we do now. And it's in no, it's a very important point. It's, it's in no way to say that we don't need the ongoing work on behalf of women and girls in many of those areas. It is to say that absent any on the other on the other side, I don't mean this side in a zero sum way, I just mean any organizations that creates this huge awareness gap that you just don't know the stuff that's happening because it's no one, it's nobody responsible's job to be drawing attention to the problems of boys and men. And so the only people who are drawing attention to them are typically those who are either amateurs, and there are some amateurs out there working out of their basement trying to get this stuff out, and they're good, many of them. And then, there are, and then there's a bunch of angry people, and there's, and there's a bunch of stuff on the internet. Um, and so there's this huge vacuum in the debate, which is self-fulfilling, because when you go to policymakers, as I'm doing a lot, spending a lot of time trying to persuade them that they should do more on this, that they, they say, well, what's the problem? They don't know that there's a problem, but the reason they don't know there's a problem is because no one is alerting them to the problem. And if you're a newspaper reporter, as I was for many years, and you want to write about something, a new research report comes out, that's something to write about, right? <laughs> um, and so the best example I have of this, I think, is what happened during COVID, which is that there was a huge number of reports and analyses on the impact of COVID on women and girls, huge. Every institution, because there's a UN Council on Women and Girls, there's gender policy gangs. So there's just lots of people whose job it is to get up and say, how is this pandemic going to affect our group, i.e. women and girls? And a lot, of, a lot of it was good. Most of the fears, by the way, turned out to be unfounded, thank God. Um, women's employment's bounced back a bit more strongly than men. Domestic violence rates went, actually went down during the pandemic. Uh, the share of women in senior management went up. So there's a lot of good news that came out. But I understand the fear that led to those reports. The problem is no one was producing a report saying that the college enrollment rates for men dropped seven times more than for women in 2020. Nobody was producing a report saying, you know, men are dying at at least 50% and in some cases 100% higher rates, right? No one was doing that because like name the institution whose job it is to do that. And the answer is it does not exist. That's a, so that then creates this awareness, advocacy, policymaking thing. And it creates this incredibly dangerous cultural and political vacuum that then reactionaries of one form or another are really, really exploiting right now. But it's kind of our fault. Going back to the uh, zero-sum game uh, for a moment, especially with that as a, as a backdrop um, and the blindness and the negative partisanship, 
this book came out at the end of last year uh, before this round of fighting over the debt ceiling and congressional spending uh, was upon us. And we're likely going to see now cuts to discretionary spending across the board at the federal level. Um, How do you think that... uh, could you know this new this dynamic that we're in now over the budget um, could fuel these zero sum arguments? How would you counter them? Um, what would you say to lawmakers who are now going to be facing uh, a pretty severe um, budget budget problems when it comes to discretionary spendings discretionary spending that fuels a lot of and funds a lot of the research that we're talking about? How would you have them think about this? Yeah, well, that's where it does get more difficult because obviously limited resources can fuel you know, the sense of zero sum. And, and I think, again, when it comes to public resources, it's important to be honest here, which is if, for example, the White House Gender Policy Council were to spend more of its time or any of its time on issues on boys and men, then that's a certain amount of time and political capital that would not be being spent on women and girls. I think I have to make that argument on its merits and just say, there are some issues where the gaps are so big the other way now that you really just should, if if your goal is really to look at gender equality, gender equality intellectually right. as much as anything else. And then I would make, yeah, I'd make you, you got to decide what you're about. Um, and I think, and then I would make a kind of political argument too. But I would also say that I think in some of these cases, just the mere fact of raising awareness and adding these analyses to the sort of standard battery would be hugely helpful. So I'll just give you like one example: is that we don't know what the on-time high school graduation rate is of black boys in America. Because the federal government doesn't require states to report sex in their high school graduation rates. They have to report all kinds of other things. They don't have to report sex. So I did some work on this. We have to go state by state to try and get the data. The federal government requires states to report their on-time high school graduation rates by race by English as a first language, by foster care status, by disability status, and so on, but not by sex. And so because of that, we can't do the intersectional analysis we right. were just talking about earlier. Right. Like, I don't know what it is for black, black girls because they don't collect by sex. This is a classic, And what, what all, gets measured gets managed, right? Yeah, and, and the reason I'm, I'm highlighting that is because that would cost the federal government nothing to ask states to do that. It would cost states nothing to report it because they already collect it, right? <laughs> right? Um, and so it's not like it's new data collection for them. And then if they reported it to the NCES, we would have the data nationally. And so I would have, I would then be able to tell you what the on-time high school graduation rate of black boys and black girls and what in the US. It's right. So like, so that's, uh, there's a free policy idea, which I have not made any progress with so far. So part of it is just data and awareness and, and doing relatively small stuff. And the only other thing I'll say is that when there are places where we really do think that a focus on boys and men would help us with other problems in our economy and our society, that it, it would be as well to look at them. So for example, if we really do face shortages of teachers and nurses and so on, that's a really good argument doing more of what I suggest, which is working very hard to get more men into those professions. Because yeah. right now we're trying to solve labor shortages with only half the population. Right. And that's just crazy. And we wouldn't do it if it was the other way around. We'd automatically be thinking, how can we get more women into these professions? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so we should do the same for men. And so I do think there will be more of a, there's some areas where there'd be a clear policy upside. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about solutions. Uh, and you mentioned one that you uh, admit is fairly controversial, um, which is this red shirting. Uh, 
Can you, first of all, maybe describe what this solution is, uh, where it might fit in a, you know, in a, in an array of solutions that people ought to be considering. And, um, and, uh, and then, you know, I'd love to hear, um, about what kind of criticism you've received, both constructive and not, and how you've dealt with that and, uh, and what you think the path forward is for this line of inquiry. Yeah, so the, it's, the evidence is pretty clear that in education, at least, there are big gender inequalities that now run in ways that disfavor boys and men. And we've mentioned some of the, dats, the data on that. So assuming we think that's a problem, then we should try and do something about it. And I was very struck by the fact that almost one in four boys in the US K-12 system have been diagnosed with a developmental disability, about 23% almost one in four. And at that point, back to the structural thing, you have to, you have to say, you have to ask yourself, really, could it not be the system at that point? Could we, is there a danger that we're misdiagnosing developmental disabilities here because we're judging against the system? And I think that is what's happening in a lot of those, those cases. And so in education, one of the proposals, as you mentioned, is to redshirt the boys. And what that means is to start them in school a year later so that they're a year older uh, throughout schooling. And the real benefits, I think, will come in adolescence, where their brains are just so far behind the girls. And so you hit this, when you hit high school, which is when middle and high school, where you see these massive gender gaps opening up. It's partly because the boys are just, they're just behind. The development of the girls. Yeah, I don't like saying less mature, because people think that's, that sounds normative, right? You're sort of eye-rolling, oh, right. you're so immature. But, yeah. but in terms of brain maturity, it's just true so let's start the boys a school year later by the way that's something that kind of elite schools and upper middle class parents are, they're doing it already right this is like this is not really? this is not breaking news in elite circles oh, oh, absolutely not no there's one i report on this for the atlantic piece i wrote for them and one of one of the private schools in washington dc very well known but i can't name them because they gave kind of gave me their data they shared their data with me on the birth Day, the birthdays of their graduating seniors and 30% of the boys were quotes too old for that year. So at wow. some point they started late, et cetera. And, 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 it, and in those elite circles, someone, the line someone gave me is like, everyone knows there are two entry dates, one for girls, one for boys. So this is like an open secret in wow. kind of elite, elite circles. Um, and there's some ev- pretty good evidence that it would help. At the very least, I think it should draw attention to the fact there's this developmental gap between boys and girls, which is now showing up now that we are allowing girls to show what they can do in school and college. Yeah. They're just blown right past the boys because they are at an advantage. We leveled the playing field and it turned out the girls are better players <laughs> so, <laughs> because of this brain. So start the boys uh, a year later. But also, and I would say just, just as importantly, increase the share of male teachers. We've seen a big drop in the share of male teachers in our classrooms down to 24% of K-12 teachers now male, down from 33% just a few decades ago. Only one in 10 elementary school teachers, almost no primary, no early years teachers are male, almost two, between two and 3%. Um, and that's, that trend is just wow. getting worse, yeah. right? I'm, and, 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 and again, it's just not a policy area where anyone is doing anything, even though I have yet to find somebody of any political background to disagree with me that it's a bad thing that we have fewer and fewer men in our classrooms. But getting someone to do anything about it, different story. And we're just watching the line. 
get you know further and with watching and and not doing anything about it and it's going to get progressively harder to get more men into teaching because the more gender segregated any occupation becomes the harder it is to persuade people to go into it from the other the other gender and then the last thing um is more vocational training and i call for a doubling in the share of technical high schools which is a very pro-male policy technical high schools are really good for boys they don't seem to have much effect for girls negative or positive they're much more popular with boys and the parents of boys and they have great outcomes from connecticut and massachusetts studies and so i would love it if every decent sized city in the u.s had at least one technical high school that the boys could go to because we you know the last two grades of high school for a lot of our boys are really not not great they're not they're not years of rich human capital development they're just they're just like the boys are just limping through them and then falling off the end yeah um Okay, before before we go, I want to spend a little bit. Oh, you, I didn't answer your thing about criticism. Yeah, I, criticism. I, I wanted. Yeah, I wanted. To, I, I wanted to come back to that because I wonder. You know, and you can you can feel free to take everyone. This. Everyone loves it. Ron. <laughs> I everyone mean, loves it. at first I was thinking, you know, what was going through your mind when you decided to take on this project, given all of the headwinds that you knew there would be, and uh, and how have those manifested in the you know in the, the reception. Um, and have you how how have you dealt with the criticism? Whether it's been fair, constructive, not so much, and uh, and what sort of what has the experience been like? Because one thing that I'm thinking about now, that I'm aware of the data uh, and the problems after reading this fantastic book, is how how to advocate more effectively without incurring political wrath, right? For um, for talking about these things as a problem. So so. Uh, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on all of that, but the experience and then how to be a better advocate for um, change. Yeah, so uh, one of the one of the reasons that I did decide to embark on it was because of the number of people warning me against it. And to be clear, that's not because I'm a sucker for punishment. You know, I don't uh, I don't I didn't say yes. This will this will upset a lot of people. I should definitely do it. It was precisely because of some of what we alluded to earlier, which is that if you don't have Brookings senior fellows writing to you know very you know data heavy policy oriented books on this subject, then you've basically just ceded the ground to people who just come at it from a purely ideological agenda. And so I felt like if people were warning me that I shouldn't do it because if I did it, I would become characterized, caricatured, labeled as quotes one of them. I'd start frothing at the mouth all of a sudden and you know become incredibly angry and whatever. Uh, I'd be one of them. Then I thought, God, I've got to do it then. Right, because that's the very definition of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we've created an environment that's so hostile to even the discussion of this, right. that anybody who goes into this treacherous terrain is described as brave, right? Then, God, I've got to do it. Yeah. Um, precisely for that reason, because if I can't do it, then who can? Um, uh, and I will say, on the kind of you know, people sometimes say you know you're brave to write this book, and I actually this will sound very un- unforgivably masculine, but I'm going to say it anyway that I actually have a picture of my um, great-grandfather who fought in the Battle of the Somme um, and was sufficiently wounded that he actually couldn't return to his job as a coal miner and so had to switch to other things. I have a picture of him, Tied Bess. He's from the Welsh side of my family. And I just have that picture of him. I have it on my phone and I have it more generally. And I, and I, and I think, I, think what it, what I imagine a conversation with my great-grandfather, perhaps just after he'd survived the Battle of the Somme, um, about... You know how courageous I was being about writing this book, 
uh, and how courageous I was enduring these nasty tweets that I get or the occasional email. And I'd say, don't you think I'm brave? And I want to imagine how he would look at me <laughs> like, right, as I describe my enormous courage in uh, taking on people on Twitter or whatever. Um, and so I just think this whole courage thing is so massively yeah. overplayed. And it's yeah. so it's such a kind of self failurizing thing. Yeah. Like, like yeah, yeah, come back to me when you've actually done something. Yeah. But in terms of criticism, I, the, the way I, I wanted to land the book was precisely in a way that would allow people to talk about this and advocate for boys and men in a way that wasn't zero sum, that recognized the ongoing work that's necessary yeah. for women and girls. And that didn't sort of just parcel it out as like, we've only got so much compassion. We've only got so much room in our hearts. And, and so we have to decide who we care about. And then to just lead with the facts and see where that took me. So to some extent, I, I now think of the work here as trying to create in some ways like a permission slip. Yeah. Talk about it. Because after all, that bloke at Brookings, you know, you know who doesn't sound, he's not frothing at the mouth. Right. Um, he's he got an English accent. He's talking about. <laughs> he's, and he's English. That helps probably. You know, that, that British Brookings guy is talking about it. So, um, and the number of people who've come to me and said, because of your work, I've now raised this conversation in my in my relationships, or you know, and and people, have, including a lot of women, have come to the work and come away going, huh, okay, interesting. Not sure I agree with you about everything, but huh. And I've been very pleased by and large, with the respectful nature of the conversation that, that I've had with people about the book, even when they disagree, right? So uh, in the New York Times, for example, there's been a few mentions, but there are two dedicated columns. And one was from David Brooks, mm -hmm. which was very nice about the book, mm -hmm. summarized it, and just was nice about it. But the one that meant much more to me, and sorry, David, I apologize if you're listening to this, um, was Michelle Goldberg's column a week later that came at it from a progressive feminist perspective. And she disagreed with me, but she started off by saying, look, it's obvious there's a problem here mm. and we're quite right to be talking about it. Mm. That as a, you know, boys, and I have a son in school. So yeah, and I, that's, that's the goal, right? It's the Goldberg column that is not like savaging you for daring to, to write it or ignoring you or whatever. I was like, okay, this is, so I do feel like there was starting to create a bit more of a safer space here to have this conversation. But one of the ways you do that is the tone and by honoring the visceral reaction that a lot of women are going to have to this conversation. Like we can't, we, we can't like, we have to, we can't dishonor the fact that a lot of women listen to this and go, are you kidding me? Really? That's a very noble and understandable and inevitable sentiment. And we should just pause and allow that sentiment and honor that sentiment and then say, okay, I get it. And there's still a lot to do for women. But by the way, can we now talk about this? And my experience is as long as you'd handle it that way, there's people, people, can't wait to talk about this. It's not like it's a, it's not really a secret. It's just it's kind of like an open secret that I'm just helping us talk about. I'm really pleased to hear that. Um, you know, the way I came to your work was uh, a video that went viral on Instagram. I think of a couple of crooked media hosts discussing the New Yorker review of the book, um, which wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, but the but the hosts were sort of uh, the clip may have been taken out of context, but were grossly mischaracterizing um, the work. I later came to learn after I read the book, and so uh, I, that that was the way I came to it. And so I assumed that um, you know most of the most of the feedback from the left had been uh, of a similar nature. So I'm really pleased to hear that that even even when there is disagreement, that at least is acknowledged the problem and uh, and the conversation has begun and. Uh, 
and well done for that. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly not going to claim claim all the credit for it uh, by any means, but but I do think I brought something a bit different to it, uh, and that's allowed the conversation to to open up in in different spaces. And look, uh, I haven't actually seen that clip. Somebody else has mentioned it to me as well, so I guess at some point I should actually watch it. Um, and I've had some some slightly testy stuff on the right as well. And the right really don't like the way that I promote fatherhood over marriage. And so there's been a few things. I had one really, really ad hominem review from um, actually Naomi, Naomi Schaefer-Riley, who's an AI scholar, um, that was quite tough that came out, that came out early. So maybe it's kind of sort of even now, I don't know, between left and right. And so, yeah, there's been a little bit of that. But look, you can't get into this territory without having some of that. But by and large, the, the, the nature of it has been been substantive and that's all one can hope for is that people are saying i'd look i, I get what you say i don't agree with you about this or i don't think you should do that or like, if people start if, if people are now arguing with me about what we should be doing about this problem boom let's let's I'm have done. the discussion yeah. <laughs> so yeah. great, great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my job here is done it's like, um rather than is there a problem here we should even be talking about how dare you then um then i've we've we've, we've made huge progress Richard, before we uh, part here, where can everybody find you on the internet? Where should they order the book? Uh, you also mentioned there's a Substack as well. Tell tell everybody all the places you can be found and how to support your work. So obviously at the Brookings Institution, um, with um, ongoing work there, I have a Substack that is called Of Boys and Men. So the same uh, title as the book. The book can be bought everywhere, <laughs> um, hopefully, uh, including the usual uh, places. Uh, and the Substack is also an opportunity for people to feed back to me uh, as well. They can obviously get to me through the Brookings website. But the best way to sort of be in touch with me and be part of the conversation is through the Substack. And it's obviously open for comments. So I love people being in touch with me. And then on Twitter, uh, which is my main social media outlet place, it's Richard V. Reeves. Terrific. And we'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Uh, Richard, I look forward to watching how this develops uh, with interest. I would love to have you back. Uh, It's been great talking to you. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.